Good morning, community. It's good to be back. It's good to be home. Uh, missed a lot of you, and I wanted. We've been gone in Israel, a group of us from our church, um, with another church, uh, Christ Rock, and it's just so good to be home. And I want you to know that when I get these opportunities to whether go on a missions trip um, to Israel to these conferences, it's it's with great passion that I come home, wanting uh, to share with you. But one thing I think you need to know, I mean, we just spent 10 days in Israel looking at stones. I mean, really, looking at rocks, you know? What's so exciting is to talk about the living stones. That's what the scripture talks about, and that's you. Uh, Whether it's Ethiopia, whether it's Haiti, whether it's Uganda, whether it's Israel, what I love is talking about community church. And saying, I want to tell you about our church. And so we've told people and pastors about our church. And like Paul will talk about the Macedonian churches in the New Testament. Small. You know, we're in Green Bay. We're, we're, we're kind of not really qualified to be a big city, but we kind of are in the scope of things. But you're making a big impact. And I just want you to know I love coming home. Not just because uh, it's my house and, and my warm bed, but it's, it's coming to you. Coming home to see you. It was such a pleasure to come home to you guys this week, and I know uh, Damien set you up to, to do these letter things, so I'm coming home to read all this good mail, which is oh, so exciting, and so what a, a privilege it is uh, to be a part of that, yeah. Anyway, thank you, and you, I don't know, did you say I'm to slip money in there or No. Sorry, new timers are like, what? No, you don't pay me that way. Um, Hey, if you're new, we're so excited to have you here. I really am excited to have you here. And I know wherever your journey has led you through your faith experience, whether there was one or not, we're just, we're glad you're here this morning. And this morning, I want to share with you kind of this, this part of the series that we're in is really called Words to Live By. The reason we started this series, because we wanted to be able to tell you um, some of the things that, in the scriptures that Jesus said that work for today. I don't know if you know that, but your Bible, our Bibles are full of amazing stories about Jesus. And we just got a chance to be in Israel. They say there's 41,000 historical sites that the Bible uh, authenticates there. Let me just say that again. 41,000 places that you can read in your Bible and saying, oh my goodness, this is more archaeology, more stones that where Jesus walked, where disciples walked, where Old Testament scholar, or people that we read about walked. It's one of the most unique places on earth because you're not only standing in a place of history, because you've done that, right? I've been to Memphis and, and been at the hotel where Martin Luther King was killed, and that's part of history. It's different standing in a place of history where prophecy will be unfolding. It will be future Uh, where it's going to unfold there. That's amazing, standing, whether it's the Mount of Olives. One of the great places we got to be was this picture. I caught this Arab woman watching, looking out in the the distance there, and she's looking at Nazareth, a place where Jesus grows up, and there she's looking at Nazareth. You know the hill we're standing on? We're standing on the hill where the crowd gathered around Jesus. They didn't like his teaching, and they were going to try to push him off. So we decided Pete should do the reading up there, and we should... (laughs) Like, try to reenact that a little bit. And, uh, but 
come on, this is, these are places that Jesus walked, the disciples walked, our Bibles are full. And friends, Jesus is real, not only in archaeology, but more importantly, he's changed people. And we wanted to talk for a series and just say, there are things in the Gospels, the four books, the four disciples that write about Jesus' life that give testimony to things that we can live today. We sat in, in seriously some places new this time two years ago that we didn't go. One, Beth Cheyenne, a full Roman city. A, a full Roman city built uh, by the Caesars and Herod that was decadent, where it had whorehouses and uh, it had vomitoriums, arenas where they were killing Christians. And friends, the words that Jesus talks about, about how we're to live our lives, were for then and also now. We might think our world is a lot worse. Friends, it hasn't changed. And so we wanted to lean into a series where it said, words you can live by. These are words that you can live by, and they will change your life, no matter your situation. And so that's where we're at this morning. And if you have Bibles this morning, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on carts if you wanted us to get up and grab one. But we're going to go to Matthew chapter 14 this morning. And if you want to turn there, we're going to start at verse 22. But I want to give you a little bit of backdrop. And I want to tell you a, a, a story about two hunters. Two hunters are trying to figure out some property to hunt, and they're scoping out some, some farm fields and land. They come across this one area and this one farm, and they see it's kind of a, a broken down barn, kind of a dilapidated home, thinking it may be even not be anybody there, but they could tell by the two chickens that are kind of being fed, and there's a goat that there's probably maybe someone by chance in the home. These two hunters are walking by, and they walk by a well, and they see this big well, and they're, they're saying, I wonder how deep it is, if there's still water in it. They look around, they say, we've got to throw something in there, and so they find this, this axle, this big transmission, and they both heave it over, and just like two guys will probably do, like throwing stuff into a well, they do, and they count 1,001. 1,002, 1,003, boom, big water. Yep, there's water in there, pretty deep. No real purpose, just wanted to do that. So as they look behind them, though, all of a sudden they see the goat running just full speed, horns down, ready to knock him in the well. They get out of the way just in time, and the, the goat goes down the well. Splash. Well, all that commotion, the farmer comes out, and they dialogue. They're trying to look for a place to, to hunt, and he agrees to give them this hunting land to, to hunt on. And the farmer says, have you seen my goat? And he's, these two guys said, yeah, he almost killed us. He was just running full speed at us, trying to knock us in this well. And they said, you should try to tie him up. And he goes, I did. I tied him to an old transmission. <laughs> How many of us this morning are tethered to something? that's dragging you? How many of you in your life are tethered or roped to something that's slowing your life down or dragging you down the pit into a well? One of the things that I've known as a pastor and seen more probably prevalent in the church today is that people uh, often in the church are tethered to fear. Tethered to fear. And there is probably not a bigger theme in the Bible that's spoken about more often where Old Testament and New Testament, often God is saying, prophets are saying that God says, don't be afraid. 
This morning we're going to dive into the very words that Jesus says is don't be afraid. And yet I think many people today have tethered themselves to fear. And fear is so debilitating, isn't it? It's so destructive. Two things that fear does to a person. One, it changes your perception on how you think. Perfect example is you, you can't pay a bill, right, on time. You can't pay a bill and, uh, or actually let me back up, you, you've decided that you're going to give some money and you do and then you realize you can't pay a bill and all of a sudden everything looks bad, right? The whole forecast of your, like, your whole financial life just looks dark and gloomy. Fear starts to paint that picture. One relationship goes wrong. What happens with fear? If it starts to tether you and pull you in, what happens? You start to go into despair and think, all my relationships are terrible. You see, I think often a life goes in the direction of the thing that it's most tethered to. And I know many people walk into here this morning feeling the pull of fear in so many different areas. It could be financial, it could be health, it could be just your spiritual journey just afraid to take a step. And this story this morning is going to be so powerful for you to hear because it's not my words. It's the words that Jesus is going to share with his disciples in the midst of a very real, fearful situation. Because let's be truthful. Fear is a good thing for some of us at certain times in our journey, right? Fear is a warning that something's not right. So it gives us, it could distort our perception and maybe not be reality, but sometimes it helps. The other thing that fear does is it changes our behavior. It changes our behavior. Fear begins to change about how we act. If you've been hurt or maybe you've been fearful of being hurt in a relationship, what do you tend to do? Fear makes you close down and shut down, right? I'm no longer taking risks. Fear begins to change not only how you perceive life and how you view people, but it also changes your behavior. Now, I had some things go on with me before I got on to Israel, and I felt um, one of the things that, that can spin me out is f- hearing voices of people saying things that I've done right or wrong. And I start to all of a sudden hear that, and my whole world can blow up. My whole world can look. I can take a few comments and make everything feel like it's bad when it's not really that way. And it changed my behavior. I remember my wife, we were packing for Israel, and I said, I don't even want to go. And it changed my whole disposition. Fear does that to people. Many of you this morning have walked in and you're tethered to something that's just killing you. And I'm hoping and praying this morning that God gives you freedom, again, not from my words, but some words to live by that Jesus gives us. And so let me give you a little bit of context. First of all, fear, defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by being aware of danger, a feeling of being afraid. Again, it's, it's not altogether a bad thing. Fear can save us in certain circumstances or warn us. But Scripture makes very clear that we're not to fear anything in this world. We're only to fear the one that's in control of our souls, and that's God himself. And even that kind of fear, he'll say, fear me, come to me, surrender to me, but then he'll say, don't be afraid anymore. You're one of mine. And that really is the message of the gospel or the Bible. But fear uh, is going to be something that these disciples are going to see very, very real in, in this moment. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to take you to uh, 
Basically, Israel right now, where this story unfolds, and it unfolds in the Sea of Galilee. It's the northern body of water. It's the only freshwater body of water in the Middle East. Um, it's why the land still today is such, uh, it's such a big deal about Israel. Uh, but Israel uh, has this sea, Sea of Galilee. It's actually not a sea. That's what's interesting. It's more like a lake, but they had no way to describe a, a sea or a lake, so they used the word sea, Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee can look like this. In fact, two years ago, when Trish and I and some other people from another church went our first time, this was the Sea of Galilee glass. Now, what's interesting for some of you fishermen out there, you know that if a lake is shallow, what can wind do very quickly to a lake? The shallower a lake, the more wind has an effect on it. So the Sea of Galilee is only about 200 feet deep. It's only 8 miles wide and about 13 miles long. It's really not that big of a body of water. And so when winds come, it can look very quickly like this. Three to four foot breakers can be in this uh, part of, of the country. Now, the winds are, there's high mountains and there's low mountains. There's desert mountains. That hot and cold air mixture just creates for weather patterns to change like that. Now, here's what's so amazing. On our trip in Israel this year, we get on the boat. We always get on the boat and we'll do singing and we'll read a passage and typically the passage I'm going to share this morning about Jesus walking on water in the storm. Well, two years ago it was really hard to get this story because we're like, it's just peaceful. It's just, it's like a dinner cruise, you know, just loving it. We get in there and sure enough, uh, within minutes, the storm comes out of the east, lightning, thunder, and we have to turn the boat around. We can't even do the reading or anything like that in the boat. It sent chills because we were like, wow, this happens here. This is legit. So this is a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. Now, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee has three towns, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Now, uh, these three towns have significance because most of your four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are going to talk about Jesus doing ministry here or in Jerusalem, very far south. Most of Jesus' ministry uh, represented is, is talking about these three towns or this northern area of Galilee. Now, I also want you to know that he did a lot of miracles in these three towns, and it's three towns that he curses. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works, for if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are two cities still um, existent today in Lebanon. Uh, and it says, if, if I had done what I did in these three towns, to you, to those two towns, they would have repented. And he says, because of that, you'll be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have been remained in the day. Bottom line is, he curses three, three towns, and this is Capernaum today, the town he grows up in. Three, these three towns are rocks. No one lives there. Isn't that amazing? Tyre and Sidon, people live there. These three towns don't. It was so interesting to watch as you watch. Jesus had done so many miracles in these spaces and done so much for them, and they missed it. Romans chapter 11, something for you maybe to read when you go home today. It talks about God put, pulling kind of the, the blinders over the eyes. You can be so close to Jesus and yet miss him. And these three towns are cursed. Now, it gives you a little perspective of the region. Jesus spent a lot of time here because rabbis were developed in this region. But I also want you to, to notice something else, very interesting. 
uh, there are two parts of the Lake of Galilee that people don't recognize. And when you read the Gospels, it shows that Jesus is going from one side to the other all the time, right? He goes to this side, he goes to that side. Why? Because on your left is called the Jewish region, the Jewish side of the lake. On the other side is the Gentile side of the lake. And Jesus is not only a Jewish Messiah, he is one that is also for the non-Jews. He is the Savior for all. He goes back and forth to both sides. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus just did not spend time on the one side, but he went to both. And so like when Jesus casts out the demons to the pigs, that's on the Gentile side. He feeds 4,000 on the Gentile side. He feeds 5,000 on the Jewish side. Jesus is now going back and forth. So, fishermen who fish this lake, most of his disciples, are very familiar with the lake. Getting in a boat and going across it is not a big deal to them. Now, let me take a step back. In that culture in that time, the YMCA had yet to open up uh, swimming classes. They had not started swimming classes. I know that's a shock. They did not have classes back then for swimming. Swimming was not necessarily something everybody did. In fact, you read about Paul being shipwrecked three times and surviving is unheard of. The idea that the, the lakes and the seas there, there was a representation or a symbol of chaos, of hell, of the abyss, of bottomlessness. In fact, many of the pagan cults are sacrificing people by throwing them in there and having them sink into a place of the gods. So there's a very big darkness part of a lake. Now what's interesting is that fear about water is rampant. And so you can imagine if you're a fisherman, you might know how to tread a little bit of water, but being on the lake when the storm came up, not a good idea. Not very safe. In most cases, they would travel really close to shore. So you see this picture. It shows now pretty much where, oh, this is our view from the hotel, the Sea of Galilee. That's a, you know, just last week. So you see it's uh, a beautiful kind of picture. This is from the Gentile side, actually. So you're looking over to see um, the Jewish side. But you see now in this scene that we're in, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus has asked them, the disciples, to kind of boat across to the Bethsaida area, kind of the northern part of the lake. Now, eastern wind coming from this side of the lake means that those fishermen are rowing against breakers, right, and wind. It says that the, the disciples fought this all night, and it says that at the fourth watch, they see Jesus. That means about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. They've been fighting this storm all night. I don't know how, many, how many of you fishermen or, or boaters have been in a storm and fought it for hours? They're in a, a situation that's pretty dark and fearful. And they're not sure if they're going to make it. That sets a little bit of the context for what we're going to read now. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 14, we see this, what Matthew's going to kind of detail for us. It says, immediately, Jesus makes his disciples, they've just fed 5,000 people on the Jewish side, get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. After he dismissed them, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind that was against them. Uh, scholars say it's probably, if there's eight miles across, they may be halfway in the middle. So, so perfect. I mean, God sets up stuff, they're in the middle of the lake. They're in the middle of the abyss. 
there's a storm. They're not sure if they're going to make it. They're tired. It says, shortly before dawn, again, 3 to 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Um, it's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Now, a couple just thoughts here. First of all, the word terrified in the Greek actually means terrified, right? It just means you're freaked out. Now, sometimes we read over this stuff too quickly. If you're a, a boater or a fisherman, 3 to 6 a.m., you've been fighting for hours a storm, and all of a sudden a ghost starts walking on the lake. You've either had too much to drink, right? Um, something's not right. You're hallucinating, right? Some, that would freak you out, right? Are you with me? You'd freak out? Some of you are like, no, no problem. Watched enough movies. Uh, it would freak, it freaks them out. They're terrified, not only now of the storm, but what's unfolding. It says this, but Jesus immediately says to them, he shouts, take courage. It's I, it's me. Don't be afraid. Peter is this disciple that we, we've learned to love and hate because G, uh, Peter either fails really big or he wins really big, right? He has no middle space. There's just no, there's no like kind of just cruise. He's either failing really hard or making it. And he says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said, Jesus said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked in the water, and came toward Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Now, just a couple thoughts here. First of all, Peter gets a bad rap in this story. This story often is, is kind of framed within the idea of losing faith. But let's just give Peter some credit this morning, right? You're in a storm. You don't know how to swim. You're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. You're... you're your idea of the abyss of underneath that water freaks you out anyway. You're seeing three to four foot breakers. You fought it for hours, and all of a sudden you see a ghost. I don't see the other disciples jumping out and saying, I believe. Peter gets out of the boat. At some point you have to recognize Peter on some level had a 50% plus belief that it was Jesus. Otherwise he's ridiculously stupid, right? He got out of the boat. What's he thinking? Because to jump out of this boat, and, and even the idea of saying that I can walk on water, if it's you, you'll make me water, walk on water. Unbelievable that Peter does this. And, he, and Jesus says, come. Just like when, when Damien talked about Jesus saying, come to me, all who you are heavy laden. He says to Peter, come. I want to know you and you know me. I, you're welcome. So Peter gets out of the boat, walks on water. And what's happened? Immediately his focus gets lost. Isn't that so true of us? His focus gets lost in the midst of something amazing unfolding. And what happens? He starts to sink and he screams, Lord, save me. Now I'm going to give you three things this morning, three principles out of this that will help you maybe untether yourself to fear. Not be the goat that's dragged into the well. Not allow things in your life that are happening in this life to drag in the well. Because can we just agree this morning, we all have things in our life that are dragging us, right? There are things that Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be perfect like a smooth sea. And often God is allowing for the rough seas for us to change us and to be a beacon to others 
as he saves us in front of others. Well, let me give you this first point this morning then. In order for us to begin to see some victory in not having fear, first, we, we've got to step out. We've got to step out of the boat. So many of us can find ourselves stuck in a boat waiting for the sea of glass, waiting for everything perfect, really close to shore, so I'm, I'm eliminating all the risk. And this morning, maybe God is saying to us, as he was calling out to this boat of disciples, and only one of them takes the risk and says, I'm stepping out of the boat. This morning, if you want to be a person that doesn't have fear, maybe God's saying this morning that you've got to step out of your boat. Maybe it's relationally. Maybe just getting into a group in, in our culture here in, in community church is, is the stepping out for you. It's one of the things I hear very common. It's one of the things we've lost in our culture in America today. The ability to be good neighbors. And I'm not just saying like trading like snowblowers and lawnmowers. I'm talking about diving into the life, the messiness of life with somebody. That's scary, isn't it? Because it's messy and you don't like how they deal with life and it can get confusing and you're going to have to deal with their hurts and pains and they're going to frustrate you. I told our Israel group for months, hey, fair warning, you're going to get frustrated with people on our trip, maybe even me. Because we're not all the same, right? And we're wired different and we have preferences that are different. And sure enough, it was interesting to watch some of that unfold for us to say, man, it's... God gives me, he's teaching me patience with you, right? He's growing me up. And relationships could be maybe where you have to step out. Maybe it's trusting God spiritually in your life. Maybe some of you have showed up this morning and you're not giving God uh, that room to step out and just say, God, I believe, but I'm nervous. What's going to happen if I step out? I don't know what it is for you this morning, but I know that many people live their life on the boat and just want everything to be the song and dance and smooth waters. And yet Jesus is calling us in John 17 to be a part of the world. He says it. He says it. He doesn't pray the prayer, Lord, I want them to be in church buildings and huddled up nice together so everything's safe. I'm going to make everything perfect. I'm going to make their health really good, their finances really good. He says, no, I'm going to leave them in the world. And the world is going to be rough. But when they are stepping out of the boat and I am saving them and they're seeing victory in the middle of the storm, I'm going to get glory. That's what God says. So we could be in towns like Beth Cheyenne where this Roman decadent city and the words that Jesus is saying is step out of the boat and be a Christ follower and disciple and watch me work could change a city. It changed Ephesus. It changed Corinth. It could change Green Bay. This morning, maybe God's saying for you to step out. The second one this morning goes into the next part of this text. The story says, immediately then Jesus reaches out his hand and catches Peter and says to him, you of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Just a couple thoughts here. First, okay, come on. You've been fighting this storm for hours. Now you've seen Jesus calm the storms, a miracle before. Jesus has done this before. Now he's walking on top of hell. He has victory. He is on top of the abyss. And he climbs in the boat and could you see the boat going you could feel that. 
And the disciples just going, whoa. He just walked on top of chaos and, and storms and confusion. And he just calmed all of that. It had to be an amazing moment. But before that, remember Peter cries out, says, Lord, save me. You know what I tend to do? I get out. I, jumping out of the boat's not a problem for me. I remember we used to go water skiing, and we would have people drive the boats, and they would be driving in the boats, and all of us would jump out of the boat while I was going. Very stupid. Don't ever do that. But jumping on the boat's never been a problem for me. It's in the midst of the storm where I get distracted. And then I feel like I'm in charge of calming the seas. I feel like I'm the one that's supposed to manage the chaos around me, not Jesus. But what does Peter say? Lord, save me. Look what he does. Jesus doesn't berate him, does he? Peter, I can't believe you asked to get out of the boat. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I can't believe that you started sinking and I, I should have. He doesn't let him sink, does he? He doesn't just let him drown. I'll teach him. All the disciples will learn the lesson. Don't doubt me. He says, you of little faith, why'd you doubt? Why did you lose perspective? It's not that Jesus doesn't, or it's not that Peter doesn't believe it's Jesus. He knows it's Jesus. So what does he lose? He's not losing his perspective in Jesus. He's gotten distracted by the storm. Isn't that what happens? We let the fear of the storm take over and distort our perception and distort our behavior. And this is what happens to Peter. He is, he's lost. James, the half-brother of Jesus, himself doubts Jesus. John the Baptist, after the midst of baptizing and, and being a part of Jesus' ministry, sends, um, sends Jesus a message and, and asks him, are you really the one? He doubts. Friends, there's room for doubt in our faith. And what's great is that Jesus doesn't punish us for room for doubt in our faith. He says, work it out. He says, don't lose focus. The first thing is you've got to step out of the boat. The second thing is you've got to call out to him in the midst of your doubt. You've got to call out to the Father in the midst of your doubt. So much of our culture, especially in Western thinking, is that we can do it. We can work hard enough. We can get ourselves educated enough, and, and we believe anything's possible if we put ourselves to it, which is really a lie, because that's not really true, right? I can't play in the NFL, right? I could try really hard, but I can't. The, the, the idea that I can do things that I think just putting my mind to isn't totally true. It's a great encouragement, right? We want people to believe that. We, we're going to fail. We're going to struggle. We're going to get distracted, and in those times, it's for us to look to the one that can save us. It's to us to look when we're feeling the pull of being tethered and drawn down into a pit saying, God, will you save me? You not only have to step out, but you have to begin to call out. Uh, the time change, obviously, is a big shift, and so, you know, finding myself this morning up at four and I love morning, and I want to get back to more of that early morning because there's something about that where you're calling out to God that makes your day right, doesn't it? It's claiming already, God, I know there's probably a storm today. So I'm already just going to call out already. I haven't even jumped out of the boat yet. I haven't even started my day. I'm just going to say, save me. 
Give me perspective. Help me not get lost in the midst of all that's going around. And so many people today can find themselves so caught up in fear. I know I do. How many of you this morning have found yourself stuck spiritually? Because you're trying to manage your life. You're trying to make it all right and fix it. And that's what I do. I'm the one that's trying to, to fix the storm. Somehow in my false belief, I think that I'm the, the storm calmer. I'm the one that can do that. And I realize, no, I can't. He's calling me to say, just ask me for help. you got to step out. you got to call out. The third part of this is so beautiful because it says, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are truly the Son of God. See, Matthew, his gospel is, is really particular to writing to a Jewish audience. And he wants to make sure that this Jewish audience that's been waiting for uh, uh, really hundreds and hundreds of years for a Messiah. What is a Messiah? The anointed one that would bring restoration they saw just politically to Israel, we see only later spiritually to the whole world. And what does he say? He wants to make sure his readers know that disciples said, truly you are the one. What I love about this is that boat going, slowing down. He gets in that boat and they just worshiped him. They just stopped and worshipped him. Not only do you have to step out, you start and step out. Not only do you have to call out, especially in the sense of the storm, the third thing is you have to shout out and give glory where it's due. Friends, then what happens is, some of you who struggle with sharing your faith, you don't have to say a word. Because when you're stepping out of the boat in faith, when you're calling out to the Father and saying, He is the one that gets me through the storms, and when you're giving glory to Him, whether you have cancer, whether you've lost a loved one, whether you've lost a relationship, whether your financial hardship lost a job, you're, you're glorifying God and you share the wonder of the one called Jesus. So go figure that God probably puts us in boats and in storms. Why? So He gets glory. Maybe some of the things that you're going through even this morning are things that God wants you to go through so that God gets glory, that he hears you in your heart stepping out of a boat and you begin to cry out and say, God, I, I'm so I'm afraid of this storm, but I'm going to stay focused on you. I'm going to stay locked into who you are. And I'm going to cry out to you because you're the one that calms the storm. You're the one that's going to make me walk on water. I can't. And then, man, when that sea calms and it's all over, you get to go, to God be the glory. It's Jesus. You don't even have to begin to open your mouth. Paul will talk about that. He'll say, let our lives be letters written in testimony of the one that saved us. Let, let our lives become these great pictures of God doing something amazing in us. It's no wonder that he would take a bunch of fishermen twice onto a sea they knew, into a situation that they were fearful of, only to rescue them. Don't you wonder of what you're going through these days? That maybe he's put you in that storm? 
Maybe it makes you even think of the adversarial people that God put in your storm. Maybe have been placed there for you and for others to watch you give glory to God who gets you through it. It just changes your whole perception. Because see, when you're tethered to fear, you get drug into the pit, and that's exactly what Satan wants. That's exactly what the evil one wants. He wants you, as he says, he's a, he's a roaring lion seeking to devour. He wants you to believe falsely that you're in control, that you have to manage the fear, that you have to fix it, and you couldn't believe a bigger lie because Jesus says, do not be afraid. I'm here. I'm here. In some ways, not even in some ways, in a very powerful way, the disciples are in the safest place in the universe. What's so great this morning is if you've invited Jesus into your life, you're in the safest place in the universe. There's no safer place. No matter what your life you're going through, no matter what you're seeing and believing, God's saying, I'm here. And what I love about this picture is, I want to focus just a little bit for a moment, is the humanity of Jesus. Because don't you know that Jesus could have at any moment just kind of, you know, did like some cool move of saying, he didn't have to reach out his hand for Peter. He could just go, you know, he could have said, rise. He could have just thought it. But what does Jesus physically do? He reaches out his hand. He says, come. He grabs his hand and he lifts him up. And that's so beautiful about the picture of Jesus because I believe this morning he's reaching out to all of us no matter what the storm you're, you feel like you're sinking in. He's saying, my hand's out. And, and I'm, I want to hold your hand. I'm the one. It's not a distant God. It's not a remote God that we have to feel this, this, this awkward distance from. It's a personal God that says, I want to take your hand. Follow me. I'll rescue you. What a great personal connection that Jesus does there for us. You got to step out. You got to call out and you got to shout out. And when you start shouting out, Jack Hayford's quote, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. The more we start giving glory to God, that's why community church is working. Because more of you are sharing stories about what God's doing with you in the middle of the storm. And guess what? You're, you're giving God glory. And when you do that, other people, they start to listen. What? You said what about your, your cancer? Wait, you said what about your financial situation and you're giving God glory? Where do you go? What are you, who are you talking about? Friends, that is powerful. That is powerful. This is Rembrandt's, Rembrandt's painting of, of this scene. Quite dramatic. I mean, you're looking at this and thinking, no way does any of us want to be setting this. And I know in the middle of your storm this morning, we feel like this, don't we? I know right before I got on the plane to Israel, I, some of the elders will attest to, I felt like that. I felt like that, like I'm in the middle of a storm. And friends, I can promise you this morning, based on the words to follow that Jesus says, is, do not be afraid, that when you step out, you call out for him to be the one that you focus on, that he rescues you. And when you shout out, you know what it becomes? That no longer becomes 
a reality. It becomes a picture in the museum of your life. It becomes a picture in the museum ah, of your story. Where, where God's, you get to walk people through that and go, see that? It looks crazy, doesn't it? That was my life. And this is what God did. And then you get to take them into another picture. And then there was another season of my life. And this is another picture. And I was in another storm. And you get to have just this great tour to take people through this museum of these pictures of your life. Friends, this morning we choose communion as a sacrament, as Jesus said, do this often. And we do that because it's a great reminder for those of us who have surrendered our lives to him. That in some ways this morning, we've stepped out of the boat spiritually and said, God, I'm giving you my life. I'm trusting you. But for this morning, as we go to communion, for those of you who know Christ, I'm going to ask you to ask maybe one of those three questions. Have you stepped out? Maybe you've stepped out, but you're in the middle of a storm and you're feeling like, I'm sinking. Are you calling out? Maybe you're at the other side of it and you've just seen great things. Are you shouting out? Maybe that's when you take that bread and that juice that represents the body and blood broken and shed for you that you go, wow, God. You're an amazing God. Those of you who don't know Christ this morning, I would encourage you to sit, but you can step out this morning. You can do that simply by just praying that prayer and saying, God, I want to step out. I believe in who you say you are. I believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and I I'm going to step out and give you my life. You can do that in your seat. You don't have to come to anybody. There's no magic prayer. You can do that. And you can go take your first communion. And I'd encourage you to do that this morning if that's you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we go to now a time of song, a time of embracing the sacrament of communion, may your Holy Spirit evaluate our lives urging some of us to step out, urging some to call out in the middle of that chaos that they're in, but maybe, Father, even just shouting out and giving you glory. Maybe we're reminded of who you are this morning, the great uh, Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only calms the abyss, but defeated it and stood on top of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.